So, welcome to the postscript for episode 20. Yeah, welcome. Welcome. Bienvenue. <laughs> so, uh, I think Itchy is a pretty good 20th episode. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a... Like, our 10th episode was Come and See. Yeah. And uh, that's like a, a huge classic. And so is Itchy. Yeah. So, we're keeping to the, the magic circular numbers. Yeah. Like, both of those are some of my favorite movies. Mm. So, really, really good. I just want to watch more Takashi Miki, honestly. The more I watch, the more I just get more involved. Yeah. I mean, he has such a huge filmography, but I have a few blind spots or things I want to rewatch. Maybe I'll, I'll manage to do that next. I want to watch uh, more of his samurai stuff, like 13 Assassins, Blade of the Immortal. He did a remake of Harakiri as well. It's pretty good. You know, the, like the suicide method for the... Um, uh, yeah, I know. I guess Seppuku. Seppuku, yeah. There's a, two or three other ones that I haven't seen, like Crow Zero. Yeah. I kind of want to watch some samurai stuff. I am reading a history of Japan now, so, oh, so nice. I sort of want to delve into the more historical things. I'm also reading, um, or I've just started reading uh, the tale of Genji, Genji Monogatari, mm-hmm. which I've always known about, but sort of have been a bit afraid to jump into. It's mm. kind of a big project, but fascinating. Uh, and like such early literature. From when the, is it from? Like the 10th century. Okay. Yeah. Uh, or 11th century. It's really early. It's one of the... I think it's been known as the first novel oh, yeah. of all time. Okay, so before and, uh, Don Quixote. <laughs> oh, yeah, way, way before, like 500 years before. And also it's a female author, so it's interesting oh. in that aspect too. Oh. It's sort of a look on early life uh, in the imperial court in Japan. Well, is it like an epic? Well, it's well, it's hard to... Uh, mm. to is it like a sprawling story of several years? Well, there's a lot of uh, different scenes from mm. this. There's this nobleman, Genji, and there's a lot of scenes from his life and his sort of uh, love interests and meeting with courtiers and uh, all sorts of stuff. I haven't actually started reading the book itself. I'm mm. only on the foreword, which mm. is quite long. And okay, okay. It involves <laughs> a lot of Japanese history. So oh, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, it, it really is. When you're reading this stuff, you should also play Sekiro. Yeah, I should uh, play as Sekiro. As a accompaniment. Uh... And I actually watched The Tale of Princess Kaguya. Yeah. Which was a beautiful movie. Yeah. It was the first time I actually saw it. Such a non-traditional uh, Ghibli animation. It's quite like watercolorish. Mm. And very like... Uh, the mode is quite like old Japanese watercolor. Mm. It's really beautiful. The animation is gorgeous. Uh, and uh, the tale is really sad. Because yeah, it's the other guy, um, like there's two main directors from the Ghibli studio. It's uh, Isao Takahata. He also did Graveyard of Flyerfires, I think, which is a pretty powerful movie. He um, and Miyazaki were the main directors mm. in Studio Ghibli. He did Graveyard of Fireflies, which is a really unpleasant movie, and mm. we might talk about it yeah. on this podcast at some point. Uh, although I dread watching it again because mm. it's deeply depressing. Kids yeah, in uh, war. <laughs> yeah, kids in war. That's come and see and Grail of Fireflies. Just the theme of kids in war is harrowing. Yeah. But yeah, uh, The Tale of Princess Kaguya is the last movie he did before he died. So yeah. it's also kind of bittersweet in that sense. Mm. It's such a beautiful movie and really sad and funny and, and humorous. And quite widely distributed. I think you can find it on Netflix and stuff these days. Yeah, that's where I saw it. They put a bunch of uh, Ghibli. Ghibli stuff on, yeah. up on Netflix. So yeah, I mean, almost all the Ghibli movies are amazing, so... This one was really fascinating. And also, it's based on the tale of the bamboo cutter, which is a really early Japanese folk story, which has been, uh, you know, modified and, and made into lots of plays and literature and, and movies and anime and manga throughout the years. That's also a really weird story. 
Because it's almost an early science fiction story. Oh, really? Because uh, Princess Kaguya comes from the moon. <laughs> She's sent from the moon. So it's a strange tale. And like to me, the moral of the story is quite ambiguous. Uh, it's always interesting. Yeah. Just sort of sent to Earth for some reason. Like I've read that it's for some transgression she did on the moon or whatever. Uh, and in the end, she's brought back to the moon and she has to put on this cloak that erases her memories. Nice. Just She's learned a lot of stuff and learned to love people on Earth. And then she just has to yeet the fuck back onto the moon. And just, what am I supposed to do, to do with all these emotions after watching that movie? That reminds me a lot of Greek mythology and stuff. There's, there's a lot of ambiguity in terms of, you know, they don't have clean, clear-cut morals or, you know, there's a lot of stuff to deal with on an ethical and uh, philosophical level often well a lot of like folk stories often have a clear moral but then you have like earlier mythological stuff mm. that's often a bit more diffuse mm. like because often the culture that these are made in are so forgotten or so like changed mm. that you don't really have the contextual platform to quite understand the nuances of the work so a lot of it becomes quite esoteric but uh, it's it's fascinating. But isn't there yeah. also like an element in terms of folk tale that as they were gathered, they were kind of rewritten and repurposed for a specific time with a specific intention? Well, that's, that that is folk mythology. Like that's how it works. One person tells it one way, and one like these tales are living. Yeah, but I mean, like there's like an intention, like with the Brothers Grimm and, and these people, they're, they're not just gathering oh, yeah, and regurgitating. Yeah. They have an agenda where they rewrite. And... Certainly, especially in that period in, in the 19th century in Europe, when you wrote down these tales, it was part of a, a nation-building project mm. to sort of gather national folk tales and lore mm. and sort of to build uh, a basis for saying your culture is good, your culture is worthwhile. Mm. And uh, that's quite a modern idea. Like, mm. that, that's not really until you have nation states that you really see that sort of national folktale, national epics being treated in that way. But certainly before that, the way history was written, like you, you had basically history was written often on sort of commission by, by rulers to mm. sort of give their point of view of how their house and how their reign is good, right? Mm. So it's all sort of not polemic, but intentional literature. So it's not always easy to take at face value. You have to sort of use lots of different sources and stuff. But all historical documents and literature has to be viewed through an understanding of the context of the of the text. Yeah. It's also interesting because a lot of folk tales and those sorts of stories, they were kind of, seeing as they didn't function the way they used to before, like as a as a compass, they were kind of sidelined a bit in terms of their function in society and often made for children. Yeah. And as, you know, ideas about, you know, child, not psychology necessarily, but like... Teaching children lessons. Yeah. And the responsibility of what kind of impressions young kids have, you know. Right. In a, a lot of societies, like this idea of children having a separate kind of brain and function wasn't so clear cut as we have today. So they, they clean up a lot of these stories and make them inherently quite different. Yeah, historians have said, and although this is of course disputed in mm. more modern history writing, but yeah. that childhood is a Victorian invention. Yeah. <laughs> and it, of course it's not, mm. but there was a lot of sort of more focus on childhood mm. and, and childhood being a separate part of human identity. But I mean, when people say stuff like that, I mean, it sounds a bit hyperbolic, but it's also, you know, you have a similar statement that says um, the gender was invented around that same time. But you're not saying that there weren't 
two genders or that the childhood didn't exist. What you're saying is how things are perceived in society. Like in the old days, you basically had the male gender and then everything else which didn't have an importance of its own. It didn't have an identity of its own. So it's it's kind of how categories work in society and how rules and, you know, morals are constructed around what kind of categories we have. And you didn't really have like a... I get what they mean. Like, if you look at old paintings of, of an icon, how do they paint kids? They paint them like old people that are small, not like kids, you know? Right. Well, that's actually interesting because in a lot of cultures, in a lot of European cultures in the medieval and early modern period, as far as I know, children weren't really viewed as one sex or the other until they mm. sort of came of a useful age. Yeah. Until that time, they were sort of delegated to mm. the women's quarters and they mm. didn't really have anything to do with sort of gendered activity mm. uh, until a certain age. So all these sort of ideals and concepts are malleable and have changed throughout history. Mm. Certainly when you look at a lot of prehistoric cultures and early historic cultures, you see a lot of variations in these themes. So mm. while I say that the whole childhood is a Victorian invention thing <laughs> is certainly hyperbolic, the concept of childhood and also like genders and, and sort of human identities have been in such flux throughout the ages. Mm. That's very true, yeah. But I, another thing that, that reminds me of the sort of importance of folktales and stuff and how those have changed identities and function throughout the ages, it reminds me of when we talked about Antichrist and yeah. the sort of folkloric elements in that. Because prior to the sort of the growth of, you know, the Brothers Grimm and these sort of didactic folktales or the way of writing them, folktales were quite as often for adults. Yeah. And often did not have a sort of moral or, or a, a life lesson necessarily. Mm -hmm. Often they were like ghost stories. Often mm -hmm. they were tales about weird creatures and mm. stuff. Like certainly in Scandinavia, I had a lot of that. Just tales of weird encounters. Yeah. Stuff you could encounter in nature. That, of course, inherent, that is the danger of nature, mm. which we did discuss in Antichrist uh, mm. to a large degree. But the world was quite different then. And, and folk tales had a, a magic about them that sort of has been lost to a large degree in the way these tales are often told now for children. Mm. But I feel like a lot of those impulses still live through like those narrative and say aesthetic impulses in terms of how you communicate not like danger that's relevant to us necessarily but a lot of like the ideas and narratives in culture like you see everything from video games to books and stuff they use a lot of these things paintings as part of our identity that's still very strong and uh, yeah of course i'm not saying it died it's just know? say that function of those particular mm. types of tales because these things are constantly being reinvented and you'll always have these sort of weird tales like you have like the tale of mothman in the 70s and yeah. all these sort of weird stories that we tell each other mm. over a campfire or whatever like they will always exist but the, the more uh common functions of them maybe don't have the same connotations as they used to i just think it's a, like an interesting function of the human mind and human society in terms of how we relate information and deal with way that's not like strictly you know rational necessarily but it's kind of a, a creative impulse and it's very um, relational it's yeah. not really it's not from the logical part of the brain it's sort of antithetical to science in a way it's more like a creative way of communicating something that's maybe more difficult to understand or mm. more difficult to prove yeah uh, it's more emotional uh, yeah like abstract elements i think that's often why i find certain of these stories very interesting because they do have 
some very abstract or ambiguous element that you can't really pinpoint. And, you know, a lot of life is like that. Yeah. And you don't get so much of that communicated through, like, the clear-cut, straight narratives with specific functions and specific characters that do things that you understand very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's a lot of creative power. Like, there's a lot of power in these stories. There's a lot of potential and energy in it that's really hard to define it's quite like ambiguous and that's part of the appeal of it it's really fascinating actually and uh, i think it's part of the reason why these stories and these types of storytelling will always endure and these types of symbols mm. and symbolisms and like it's always being used always being reused mm. always being sort of viewed from another angle mm. often they're also just really aesthetically pleasing yeah, yeah. <laughs> like so, these dark woods or these uh imaginative like the japanese society they have the yukai these uh, spirits and you have like in america before the europeans came you'd had these um spirits inhabiting different parts of animals and stuff and you have the the navajo skinwalkers for instance yeah it's a really fascinating legend like imbuing your surroundings with character and meaning in, in ways that are really interesting i think yeah. with intention because you see, kids do that a lot when they give intention and personality to inanimate objects. I think that's just a very natural impulse for people. It's kind of a part of the empathetic core, I think, where you're projecting personhood upon your surroundings as a, you know, a way to navigate. But also, you know, there's, there's some empathy and some... Yeah, but you can say, like, you're projecting personhood, but to a large degree, these projections can have power if they yeah. change how you behave. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, say the stories of UFOs, for instance. Mm. Like, you can say they don't exist, but you can't say they, they don't have power as stories, mm. right? UFOs exist, and these alien encounters exist in the minds of people and the way they react to it and tell these stories mm. like regardless of whether some of these stories are true or fake which i believe in large part most of them are just sleep paralysis but <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean that it's not necessarily real or fake but that's sort of beside the point mm -hmm. they have powers as stories yeah. to yeah. influence the way society works and so i think a lot of people underestimate especially in like modern times people underestimate the power of stories and the power of myths and the power of fictional creations because they do influence the way we work. Hmm. That was actually, it's not exactly the same thing, but that was an interesting point made, you know, when Corona struck strongly and everyone was in lockdown, is that, like, uh, the stories and visual arts became a lot more relevant in the day-to-day -day life for a lot of people because that's the kind of stuff that you could relate to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You it's were like, depending upon them. Yeah, yeah, but it's like... Uh... It's like a never-ending story when uh, when the, that kid reads a book to escape his bullies. It does serve a function in that aspect too. Like it's something you can go to and experience and have this balance in your life, I guess. Yeah, I started playing um, a game that has got a pretty good story. It's a company called Naughty Dog. They're mostly known for you know doing good stories with characters that are convincing, like in a more or less naturalistic sense. It's their newest game, Last of Us Part Two. They kind of take elements from a lot of different genres. There's a bit of sneaking, there's a bit of shooting. Very sort of competently made, but not very deep. In mixing them around, you know, there's a bit of exploration. It's very narrative-driven and very character-driven, you know, like the faces are really well animated and the dialogue flows really nice. And the story is quite, you know, it's kind of a, a revenge story or like a, a double revenge story. Someone has... It starts off with someone doing revenge against one of the main characters and then 
yeah, the new revenge is, is planned to ensue and I, I haven't played through it, but I expect that there's probably some ethical examination of revenge, the nature revenge of revenge. Revenge begets revenge. That's the moral of The Count of Monte Cristo, which is the best story of revenge ever. Yeah, is it? Yeah, better than Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance? Yeah, yeah, much better. Really? In my opinion, yeah. It's a great novel and yeah. everybody should read it if yeah. they have the chance to read the unabridged version of The Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. It's one of my favorite books. And it's really about revenge and what happens when revenge takes over your life. I haven't read it, but it's, it's, it's fucking brilliant. It's so good. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It is an interesting theme that's very often explored and I think very relatable as well. This wish fulfillment or the trouble around like violence always leads to violence in a sense, if not physically, then in another way, systematic. Or... Yeah, it's kind of karmic in a way. It does have these repercussions. When you put that negativity out in the world, mm. it sort of it tends to draw more negativity to it. Yeah, not necessarily to you, of course. No, no, uh, but, but it does have a worsening effect. Usually, negative effects, which is both sort of a spiritual idea, but also I think it's practical as well. Like it's an actual thing. Your actions do have consequences, and negativity does beget negativity. Anyway, yeah, actually, I thought of you a little bit when I was playing this game. Yeah, not for like a specific character or something, but there's um. They have like a sort of mini game, reoccurring mini game where you play guitar. Oh, yeah. And it's quite interestingly done. You choose your grip on the guitar from a, like a circular wheel with a thumbstick. And you can change through quite a lot of them. And then you use the um, pad on the PS4 controller to either stroke or click. So you can do like a strum or like specific. And I think it depends a little bit on where you click on the thing. I didn't quite figure out how it worked, but it feels like I could like choose kind of which individual. Uh, and it gives a kind of um, a visceral feel to playing guitars in games. That's quite interesting, actually. Yeah. Now you know what it feels like to play guitar. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I kind of like when games have instruments. I'm reminded of in uh, Ocarina of Time, the yeah. Zelda game. Yeah. We have an ocarina, and you basically a fully functioning instrument yeah. uh, with a fully chromatic twelve tone scale. Mm. And uh, I like when games add instruments. I'm playing Terraria now. Yeah, and you can find a guitar that sometimes spawns when it's raining. Yeah, does you, it do and anything? Like, and the and the chords change depending on like you click, and mm. it depends on how far the cursor is away from your character. It's pretty basic, but mm. it's fun. It, like, it doesn't have any function apart from just making sound. Mm. So yeah, it, it's I like when games add elements that do nothing but just Add a sense of play. You know, if we had a video game podcast, we definitely should have an episodes of instruments and games. Yeah, I think that would be a fascinating uh, deep dive into something that's not often talked about. I mm. think because there's a lot of interesting examples. I think often they're kind of superfluous, but sometimes they can be like an integral part, like Ocarina of Time. Yeah, where it's your main mode of the songs take you, transport you to places, and do stuff in the game. Mm. And the instrument is even in the title of the game. Mm. It's a really integral part of of the game. Mm. Then you have other games where it's completely superfluous and just adds mm. sense of fun or whatever. Yeah. Uh, or you have games like Minecraft where you can like plug boxes, music boxes with individual tones and like create fully functional musical pieces in a game. Yeah, uh. yeah Minecraft is funny that way. People have managed to make hard disks and small computers and stuff from like the different bricks. Uh. <laughs> like at this point, they've probably made almost everything that can be made in life. It's absolutely insane what some people do in that game. Yeah. Like they made a one-to-one, -one, or I'm not sure it was one-to-one, -one, but a, a complete recreation of Middle Earth, for instance. 
there's a server you go to and it's actually insane okay the amount of work okay. they put into it yeah. and of course the recreation of earth <laughs> recreation of everything you can think of have they recreated is she the killer one-to-one every still frame no that's my project i'm working on it right now <laughs> it's uh it's gonna be incredibly good that means you have to have like enough squares for it to look photorealistic and you have to make every single frame so that's 24 frames a second yeah i mean i'm gonna switch itchy with uh, one of those creepers that explode <laughs> so that's gonna be his main mode of attacking <laughs> sounds good yeah and uh Kakihara is going to be Minecraft Steve. That's the sort of main. That's the main character, yeah. I don't know anything about the names of those things. No, it's just the like the normal skin you start mm. off with. Mm. Is it blue shirt? Yeah, it's like a, isn't it like a turquoise blue shirt mm. and a, like some blue pants? Yeah, that's Minecraft Steve, mm. a, a true legend. True legend. The video game world. Well, I guess that's it for now. Thank you for listening to our postscript episode. If you'd like to get in touch, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com. Music for this episode was made by Svado Orgod and Yu Scarning, the band Umulium. And my name is Thomas Simonsen Barbara. I'm Svado Orgod, and we're going to wish you all the very best. All the very, very best. Yes. And like Tiny Tim observed, God bless us all. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.